following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. this opportunity to be before you again this morning. I thank you for allowing me the opportunity and um, looking forward to working through this text. We're going to be looking at verses 8, 18, sorry, through 22, 18 through 22. However, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to read Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 14 through the end, verse 34. It's with great joy that I invite you to hear the words of our living God. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose again and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And here's our text for this morning. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waters. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the guardians, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go! So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold... All the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we come to this point in Matthew's gospel where Christ has now completed his teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount, as we found in chapters 5 through 7. We've looked at a few verses from there previously. And he continues on in this healing ministry that we see throughout his his real life's work, the years that he was active in ministry. To start in chapter 8, Christ is shown healing a leper. And we see then that the centurion comes to him and he says, I have a, a servant who is paralyzed and is suffering greatly. And Christ says, I will go and I will see him. And the centurion in faith says, no, just say the word. And he shall be healed. And then you get to see just how far and wide the news of Jesus had traveled. The scriptures read that even that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. As you can imagine, a large crowd 
was drawn to Christ. Honestly, as I pondered and prayed on this text, I thought to myself, if I was there at that time, would I have been drawn to go see this man, this one who was healing people, who was teaching with authority, where people were crying out in this reality of all the things that he was doing? How would you have responded? What would you have thought? Coming out of a Jewish world or a Greek world and hearing about this reality of this incredible Men preaching with such authority and teaching with such authority. And then not only that, but affirming all of that with miracles and signs and wonders. It would definitely be a reason to go and to see and to experience what was going on. But we definitely see the response of many were as such. They were amazed by Christ and his teaching. They were amazed by his works. They wondered, where does this come from? How does he do this? What does this mean? I'm sure that as many do today, there were probably many there just to see and get what they wanted and then leave. They had some ailment, they had some issue, had some struggle, and they just appeared and said, whatever I got to do, Christ, you just give, you give me what I need and then I'll leave. However, true discipleship Truly following him is more than just coming to him for your needs. It's more than just appearing and saying, can I get what I need now? No, there's a a true cost that comes with following Christ. There's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost that we must all discern, that we must all consider before enduring and always as we follow him. As we look at our passage for today, I invite you to see three main points that will outline our text. Starting in verses 18 and 19, we'll see the desire to follow Jesus. Verses, or verse 20, the cost to follow Jesus. And then verse 21 and 22, the call to follow Jesus. Starting in verse 18 and 19, if you'll indulge me, as we look at this desire to follow Jesus, I would like to read those again for you. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. One of the great affirmations of our faith historically has been that vera homo, vera deus, or Jesus was both truly God and truly man. He was indeed the incarnate God on earth, all the fullness of human and all the fullness of God, all the fullness of his divinity existing together. This means that Christ was both truly man and truly God, experiencing the reality of humanity and human experiences, yet completely without sin. As previously mentioned, we're coming out of this Sermon on the Mount and we go straight back into Jesus' healing ministry. Right prior to this, he had been healing, then he stops and he does this massive teaching and then he goes right back into healing. He's been active in this ministry. It's an ongoing process. People are crowding around him nonstop. As we just read earlier in verse 16, it says that there were many that came. There were many that were gathering around him. And all of it was to fulfill what the prophet had written. He bore Or he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So we see that Christ in all his humanity is coming to this point now of needing rest, needing reprieve. Being both truly God and truly man, he experienced the reality of being tired at times. Having worked diligently, preaching and teaching. Ever had a long, really long day of work and all you want to do is just get a a brief moment to take a deep breath, to get some rest, to get some recoup. And this is what Christ is saying. This is the first time we're really seeing the Gospels where Christ says, I need to get away from all of this for just a moment. I need some rest. I need some some space. He needed rest from these never-ending demands, not because he couldn't meet them, not because he couldn't do all of the things that they were asking, but because it was important as a human, a man, to get that rest. He was being bombarded both for his teaching, but especially for his healing. 
As we know from other scriptures, Jesus was literally surrounded. Mark chapter 5, they say, and a great crowd followed around him and thronged or were present in this large number about him. And in verse 31 of that same um, chapter, Mark 5, it says, and the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you. They were coming and they were putting all of their weight and their pressure on him. They were literally like holding him practically, trying to just hold him still because everybody was trying to gather in on him. And so Jesus comes to this point and he says, I need to get away. And he orders his disciples to take him to the other side of the sea. From some of the other gospels that look at this exact same situation, as Christ gives the orders, Mark tells us that there were others that desired to go with him and got into boats to follow him. It's almost as if he couldn't just get a moment of rest. Mark chapter 4 and verse 36, And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. There are many people who are coming and following Jesus wherever he would go. They're going to follow him to hear more of these teachings, to hear more of this authority that even the Pharisees had admitted, right? They said he speaks with authority to experience his healings. They wanted to see all of this. However, as he's getting ready to go to the other side of the sea to get this little brief moment of rest that we read about as he sleeps in the boat during the storm. A scribe comes up to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Notice the scribe doesn't come asking questions. He doesn't ask him anything or make any accusations. He just comes with this seemingly bold proclamation that he would follow Christ literally anywhere. He would go anywhere with him. As a scribe, uh, an elder of his time, he would have had to have left everything behind. He would have had to have left his fellow elders and scribes and all the religious rituals of Jewish culture behind to follow this man, Jesus, this uneducated carpenter who engaged with commoners and sinners. Think about that. The scribes, the ones who held themselves with such high regard and thought of themselves so highly this scribe coming to Christ, this one who spent time with commoners and said, I will follow you. Remember, the scribes were the authorities on Jewish law. They were associated with the Pharisees. They were staunch opponents of Christ. The scribes were educated. They were scholars of their day. They would not be the ones to break with any tradition, to break with any loyalty to the Jewish people. They would not have followed because they were teachers. They were the ones who were in charge. They were the ones who were rulers. That's why Christ later, I think it's in Matthew chapter 24, talks about woe to the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, actually, sorry, chapter 23. Woe to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's constantly addressing the reality of the hypocrisy because the scribes always thought of themselves as being higher than everybody else, better than everywhere else, everyone else thinking of themselves in such a way as to be the ultimate authority over all situations. So for a scribe to come to Jesus and say, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, would have meant breaking from everything, everything he had dedicated his whole life to becoming, to follow Christ as his disciple. He would have gone from being this well-educated leader and teacher to being a simple follower of Christ. Jesus, the uneducated carpenter from Nazareth. The scribe comes to Jesus and addresses him as teacher, didaskalos. What a profound statement to come from a scribe. A scribe, the one who should be called teacher, the one that everybody did call teacher. The authority in this culture, in this world of Jewish law, comes to Christ and calls him teacher, the one who has knowledge, the one who could teach him. It's a pretty bold declaration based on what he has seen Christ say and do thus far. He's observed Christ and says, I will follow you wherever you go. 
However, the sad reality is, is that we see these kind of affirmations or declarations throughout the scriptures. We see these amazing declarations that really don't turn out so well. We see a similar declaration with Simon, right? Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 33, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Look at Peter's response. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Well, we know how that turned out. Peter, the first time that somebody comes to him after Jesus has been arrested and says, weren't you with him? Peter says, by no means. I don't even know the guy. I've never been with him. I've never seen him. Don't want to talk about him. And he does that three times. Thankfully, the Lord restored him and became this great defender of the faith, the one who would be used mightily for declaring the gospel. We see a similar story with Demas and Paul. Demas had been with Paul in ministry. He had spent an enormous amount of time traveling with him and preaching the gospel. But when Paul gets arrested, Demas flees. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We see the reality that declaration alone does not mean that one will be faithful to it. This is why the Lord makes it clear that our speech is of utmost importance. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Your speech is meaningful. Let it align with what is true. So we see this great desire to follow Jesus from the scribe. But let us now look at the cost to follow Jesus. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Christ makes a declaration back to the scribe, thinking of the reality that our speech should be truthful and in line with our actions, and Christ would be the one to do that perfectly. Christ responds to the scribe in somewhat of an unusual way. At first, it almost seems like Christ says something unrelated. You would think that if somebody comes to him and says, I want to follow you, he would say something like, very well, come on, let's go, get in the boat, let's ride. He doesn't even affirm, though, the declaration from the scribe. He doesn't even address it almost. He doesn't even give the scribe the answer he was looking for. I can only imagine if I was that scribe and I show up to Christ and I say, I'll follow you wherever you go. What am I looking for? I'm looking for affirmation, right? I'm looking for Jesus to come and say, wow, that's great. I'm glad you're willing to turn away from all your sinful ways. I'm glad you're willing to turn away from all the people you've known. Now come follow me. Let's go. Let's go have fun. Let's go do something. Let's go do miraculous works together, right? That's, the, that's what the scribe is looking for. He's looking for affirmation. But that's not what Christ gives him. Rather, he reminds the scribe of what the cost of true discipleship is. He gives him a warning. It's almost as if Christ is saying, I know you think you know what you're saying, but I want to remind you of what the full picture is here. Have you really counted the cost? Obviously, the scribe had no clue of what will occur for Jesus and his ministry and his death. However, Christ knows and says, look at my life now, and this isn't even the entirety of what will occur. Look at what's happening to me today and know that this is not the end. There will be more. There will be worse. Christ is telling the scribe, you're not just leaving one group of men to join up with another. You won't have the same comforts. The scribes lived in a very comfortable life. Opulent, you might say. They had all the food they needed. They had all the clothing they needed. They had places to live and comforts of the the modern time there. And Christ says, you won't have those if you come with me. Despite this seeming attraction of Christ, the fact that he could literally do anything. He could create anything. He could have a house and food and a place to live and a place to stay. He did not. He did not have those comforts. 
As he says, foxes have holes, a place that they call their own, a place where they go back for rest and reprieve. Birds of the air have nests, a place that they call their own, right? A place for rest and reprieve. But notice how Christ, what he says, he says, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Notice how Christ refers to himself here. He says, the Son of Man. How do we understand that term? It's the third most used way to describe Jesus in the New Testament behind Christ, meaning the Messiah or the Anointed One, right? Because that's not his last name. So Jesus, Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, or Lord. So that was number two. So number one, Christ. Number two, Lord. However, Son of Man is the way that Christ most refers to himself. That's how he describes himself. That's how he defines who he is. So how do we understand that? Since it is the name that is used by Jesus most frequently in describing himself. Well, there are two schools of thought that come out from this. First is that he uses it to show humility, to speak about his humanity, to align himself to us. While that is true, the Son of Man indicated Jesus' identification with humanity. There's something more that it speaks to. It speaks to his deity. If you'll turn with me back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We're just going to look real quick at this um, vision that he has. Starting in verse 9 of Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to get a better idea of this image or this name, Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and the ten thousand and thousands stood before him and the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So he's looking at and he sees this future, this future coming of Christ, this future reign. And he goes down, the son of man is given dominion starting in verse 13 and he says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So we're looking into this future, this future that Daniel sees in his vision where God is sitting on his throne and the son of man, Christ, he's the one who is exalted. He is the one who is lifted up. He is the one who is given dominion and honor and glory. He is the one that is given all authority over all nations and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. So Christ in saying son of man is clearly not just pointing to some sense of humility or some sense of joining with humanity, but rather he's speaking of his deity. He's affirming the reality that he is both truly God and truly man. And that is what we should look for whenever we read these types of texts. We're so frequent to think of Christ wanting to relay only his humanity, but he wanted us to see that he is God incarnate. We see that Christ uses this in a variety of ways, but it's used over 80 times in the Gospels in the Greek. Huisto anthropu. Let's look at that in just a couple passages. Luke chapter 6 and verse 5. The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. In this statement, Christ is not just saying that a man is the Lord of the Sabbath, right? That doesn't make sense. No, it's clearly saying he is God incarnate. And as God incarnates, he is Lord of the Sabbath. He's not pointing to his humility, but to his deity. 
Mark chapter 2, as he heals the paralytic. I'm just going to read this for you. He says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes, remember, so these people that he's addressing, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to him, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose and picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So think about that. The Son of Man. Would Christ use that in the sense to talk about his humanity, saying he could forgive sins as a human? No, he's speaking to his deity. He's speaking to the one who has the authority to forgive sin, God. That's what the scribes were affirming. They said, shouldn't it only be God that forgives sin? This man, they think of him as just being a man. But no, Christ says the son of man, this one, this deity incarnate. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 32. He says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This son of man is a glorious, glorious title that Christ gives himself. Yes, it does relay this reality of being born, but it really relays the reality of his deity. So what is being said by Jesus when he calls himself the son of man in this specific passage? Christ is telling the scribe that the son of man, the one that the scribe would and should know to be the only, this holy one from Daniel's vision, is the one that would have no place to lay his head. The Son of Man, the one deserving of all glory, honor, dominion, shows the humiliation that he experiences. God in the flesh, God incarnate, has nowhere to lay his head. He laid aside all his riches and came to the earth where he didn't even have a place like a fox or a bird, animals, had a place to stay, and yet he didn't. So the scribe is made aware that if he comes along with this son of man, this Christ, don't expect a great life. Expect humiliation. Expect hardship. Expect difficulties and pain. To follow the son of man has a cost. Jesus calls the scribe to take stock of the genuineness of his words. Jesus doesn't tell him, you don't mean that, or you don't have a clue of what you're actually saying. He just says, here's what you should expect. Now what are you going to do with it? Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows the intentions of all men. He knows how quick our hearts are to turn. As we read about Peter and Demas, Christ speaks about that very fact in Matthew chapter 13, right, with the parable of the sower. Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower starting in, sorry, starting in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. 
Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. You have some that falls around rocky ground. It springs up, right? This is what I can only imagine all of these people coming to see Christ. They see this miraculous thing happening. They see this Christ, this Jesus. They see him speaking in ways that they never heard before. They see him doing miracles. And they show up and they say, wow, that's incredible. I'm, I'm good with that. I want to follow that. But then what happens? This is what Christ is warning of. As he says, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says the sun will come. The trials will come. The struggles will come. And you will wither away because there's no real root. There's no real depth to you. You're here because of all the things I'm doing, but you don't really have a depth that comes from salvation, that comes from true belief and why Jesus is here, why he was here. Christ, in fact, is telling the scribe and all that read these words, to follow him is not a life of luxury. It's not a life of ease. It's not a life that is meant to be in rest and idleness. It's not a life that is for the faint of heart. Therefore, if you are a disciple, you should expect hardships. So we've seen now this reality of the desire to follow Jesus, and we've seen the cost to follow Jesus. Now let us turn our attention to these last two verses, the call to follow Jesus. The reality is, is that even though there is hardship, the call is still present. The gospel is still being proclaimed. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go, first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Here's another follower of Jesus. He's probably been with him for a short period of time. And he steps up after the scribe to express his desire to follow Jesus. Not one of the 12, but was interested in staying possibly with Jesus and said, I want to go with you, but I have something more pressing. I have something I need to attend to. He may have even been with him for weeks or months at this point, but he says, I have something I need to, to deal with. He says, first, let me go and bury my father. Now, this can be understood two different ways. One could be that his father had literally died and he needed to go tend to his father's burial. In Jewish culture of that time, when the father died, it was the responsibility of the eldest son to see that his body was properly cared for and buried. It was so important that the eldest son did this, that according to the law, he was freed from all other duties to tend solely to that matter, even religious duties. He could be excused from those for a brief time to tend to the care of his father's body to ensure that it was buried properly, especially because in Jewish culture, they didn't do embalming or any, any type of um, care for the body to prevent decay. So it was important that he go and make sure the body was buried quickly. The other possibility, though, is that this is a figure of speech in which he's saying, I need to tend to my family as a whole and tend to my family's business until the death of my father. At which point then he would be relieved from any responsibility, any, um, any agreements to his family, the family business. He could step away and be free to go and do as he pleased. Now, if this was the case, then it could mean in a very extended time. It could mean 10, 20, 30 years, depending on obviously the age of his father and the Lord's will for him. Before he would actually be free to do as he pleased. If he up and left his father now, he would be forfeiting not only his job and his family, but he'd be forfeiting his inheritance. He'd lose what he thought to be important on this earth. He'd be giving it all up. But notice Jesus' response to the man. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. If you were to just hear that statement, it would almost seem if, if Christ was lacking compassion. It was almost seem if he was just saying, who cares about the things of this world? Don't worry about it. Not a big deal. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. However, we know that Christ never lacked compassion for his people. 
It was one of the reasons that Christ came to the earth, right? And died the most painful death ever experienced was out of his mercy and compassion. We see throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Psalms, the reality of God being a God of compassion, of mercy. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and compassion. He is compassionate towards those who fear him. Psalm 103 He says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So why did Jesus respond in such a way? Why would he say such a thing to a man who says, let me bury my father? Jesus wanted to remind the man of his most important call, the call of God upon his life. It was something that superseded everything else. It was something that was immediate. It was something that was calling upon him now today that he was to respond to at that moment. Jesus was in effect saying, I am calling on you now to come follow me. Leave everything. Do it. Walk with me. Take what you have with you right now and let's go. Let the world take care of itself. Trust that God is in control of everything and follow me. The reality is, though, is that those who are not alive in Christ are dead. And Christ calls on this man and he says, then be alive. Leave the dead to bury the dead. Come, follow me. The parallel account of the story in Luke chapter 9 in verse 60 says that Jesus adds, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Christ calls him to do what all disciples of Christ were to do. Proclaim God's kingdom, the gospel, the good news of eternal life. And that was his primary duty. Jesus calls on this man to be different than the rest of the world. He calls on him to be a witness to the world. But how does one become a witness? How does one become different from the rest of the world? And Christ says, you need to leave it all behind. You need to be able to walk away. And the only way that that happens is through the change of heart that comes with the new birth, that comes through salvation in Christ. How do you become a witness of something that you never experienced? How do you tell somebody about something that you've never seen? That'd be the equivalent of me saying, man, Niagara Falls is incredible. I've never been. You'd say to me, well, that makes no sense. How can you tell me what Niagara Falls is like? Well, I heard it was really neat. Well, if you haven't experienced it, it's not the same. You can't be a witness of something you haven't experienced. And so Christ says, if you haven't experienced the new birth, you cannot be a witness to it. You cannot tell people about this new birth if you don't actually believe it. You cannot tell people about this new birth if it hasn't happened to you. If you haven't been transformed from within. It's impossible for you to be different from the world and to be a disciple of mine. If you're not born again. You must repent. You must believe. If you'll notice in both instances, the scribe and this other disciple, this other follower, are never mentioned again. They don't make a rebuttal. But the story ends with nothing further. No other comments. No other suggestions. They don't even try and argue back. They don't even try and say anything. So what happened to them? It seems as though Christ's reality check to the scribe and to this other follower, this command to the other follower, vanished the appeal of following him. You can admit from these responses that Jesus was not a salesman. He didn't try to pitch anything to them. He didn't try and say, come, follow me. You can enjoy all the great things. He didn't even try and speak to the end times. He doesn't even try and tell them, You'll have a hard life, but don't worry. There's something better in the end. You'll have something greater in the end. doesn't even mention any of that. He knew the glories of heaven. He could have sold the ultimate cell. He could have said, you think this is hard now, but don't worry. In heaven, everything is a million times, a billion times, an infinite amount of time more glorious than you could ever imagine. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't encourage them. He doesn't try and say, do whatever you want and then just come join me when you're ready. Come catch up. I'll be on the other side of the the sea. No, he says, here it is right now. This is what it is. You're either willing to pay the cost. You're either willing to make up the fight. You're either willing to go with me or you're not. Which one are you going to do? 
like the rich young man that we find in Matthew 19, they lose their enthusiasm when Christ does not give them the answer they're looking for. I'm just going to read that real briefly to you, Matthew chapter 19. I'm sure you've all heard this many times, but it's an it's a important one to hear again. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all, th- all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Christ even tries, he even gives him the full picture. He says, you will have treasure in heaven. And he says, but I have treasure here. Jesus called for all those that heard to follow him. As Matthew chapter 16 says, we're called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. Not that any sacrifice or giving of ourselves will earn us salvation but total submission to Jesus as Savior and Lord is necessary. If that cannot be given, that means that there is an idol, there's many idols that are in the way. And you will not, and you cannot come while you're holding on to your idols. Jesus makes it clear in our passage that commitment to him is complete. It's total. You cannot be split As Christ makes it clear in Matthew chapter 6, remember as you look at serving two masters, starting in verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and another idol, whether that's money or your job or your family. You cannot serve another idol. You cannot serve your sin and serve God. You're going to love one and hate the other or vice versa. You're going to be devoted to one or the other and vice versa. You can't have it both ways. You need to be able to drop the chains that you are holding on to, the chains that are holding you in your sin and your idolatry, so that you can actually embrace Christ. Christ is telling the scribe, the disciple, Anyone who hears and reads these words, that if you're willing willing to follow him, you must be willing, wholly and solely to give of yourself completely, freely, to give everything else up to follow him. And if not, then you're not really following him at all. This means that salvation is a whole life commitment. But then you say to yourself, well, how? How can I do that? I know how bad I am. I know how sinful I am. That only comes from this effectual call of Christ unto salvation. Through the Holy Spirit, you're granted repentance and faith. And even though you will sin again, and you will fall short again, you can rest assured that Christ will not let go. That is the beauty of, I'm sure you guys have heard the five points of Calvinism, but the acrostic tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, Preservation of the saints or perseverance of the saints. The final part, perseverance of the saints, points to the reality, not of something that you do, not of something that you persevere towards, but the reality that Christ will bring you to to salvation. He will complete the work he has started. What he has started in you, he will bring to completion. It sounds like something that we want to work towards, right? We always hear perseverance and it's like, well, you need to persevere in your studies. You need to persevere in your work. You need to persevere in your hardships. But no, it's Christ that's doing that. He's sustaining you and he's sanctifying you and he's bringing you unto himself so that one day you will be brought into heaven with him. It is Christ that ensures that we make it to the end. So with all this in mind, I invite you to consider a few questions based on our text for this morning. First, how do we understand what we've read here, this cost of following Christ? 
with the reality of John chapter 6, verse 37, where it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Does this contradict that? Are these two diametrically opposed? Those men from the passage seem to come to Christ. They speak well of him, right? They seem to desire him. They say, I will follow you wherever you go. Teacher, I want to be with you. But if we look back at John chapter 6 and verse 54, Christ brings clarity. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, total identification with Christ is what it means to believe in him. Total identification. There's no such thing as sort of being saved or partially being saved or partial salvation. There's not such a thing as I identify with Christ on Sundays and Wednesdays and whenever else is convenient for me. You must believe in him wholly and solely and identify with him completely. Completely. Our passage says coming to Christ is not meaning to come on your own terms. As the scribe and as this disciple did, they came and they said, I will go with you. But then when they're put to the test, they say, well, not that far. Well, hold on. Can you wait just a few more minutes? I need to do a few things. It's not saying, sure, I will follow when I'm ready and everything is prepared. The person who follows is like the disciples when Christ called on them and they dropped everything and they picked up and they followed him. Back in Matthew chapter four, starting in verse 18, Jesus calls the first disciples. He says, while walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. They dropped everything and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, and a boat with Zebedee, their father. They're with their father, mending their nets. And he called them immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. That's what is being asked. Christ is saying, follow me. Be willing to drop everything. Doesn't matter what you're doing. Doesn't matter where you're at. Drop it. Walk. Come. Be with me. This is for the ones who acknowledge their desperate, desperate need for salvation, for forgiveness, to be with Christ. There's a parallel story to this in Luke chapter 9. There's a final man that he mentions in there. And I'd just like to talk to him about that briefly. He says he too will follow Christ, but needs to say farewell to those at home. Christ said in return, no one, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's almost a sum up of the reality here that you cannot come on your own terms. You cannot come while you're still caught up in other stuff. You cannot come while you're still worried about your own things. You cannot come if your heart and your soul are divided between Christ and something else. You can't have it both ways. You can't serve the two masters as we just talked about. You must be focused on Christ. Your eyes must be forward. Not looking back on what you left. Not looking back on what's behind you. But looking forward to him. The second question that I had was, does this mean that God does not want anything, want anything good for us while we are here on earth? By no means. That is not the case. However, it cannot be the reason that we follow. As many showed up, I'm assuming during this time, they showed up because they heard of the miracles. They showed up because they heard of what Christ did. They showed up because Christ was doing amazing things. And it's understandable. You hear of an amazing Amazing teacher, you hear of an amazing man doing miracles. Why would you not go? But that can't be the reason you follow. No, you must follow, not because of anything that he can do for you here. On the contrary, it's because of what it means for you eternally. You follow him because he has called you 
unto himself for salvation. He promises you hardship. He promises you challenges. He promises you persecution. Matthew chapter 10, he goes on just a little longer on. He says, persecution will come. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. And the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So there is a guarantee of persecution. There is a guarantee that we will suffer. So why? Why do we follow him? Not because of earthly riches, not because of earthly health and wealth, not because of any prosperity that we can gain, but because of the, real, the reality of our own sinful nature, the reality of our need for salvation, the reality that we need to be saved from the very sinful people that we are. We will suffer with our master. Thirdly, and the final question, how do we understand that reality? The reality that Christ calls all these people to follow him, but not all will. There's an important distinction between the outward call and the inward call. This has been affirmed throughout Reformed tradition and theology. The outward call is the call of Jesus. He says, follow me. Come. It's the call of the gospel. Follow Christ. Repent and believe. I'm sure and I pray that many of you have shared the gospel with someone in your time. You've said, repent. Believe on Christ. You're in desperate need of salvation. You're a sinner. You need to repent and believe so that you might be saved. That's the same outward call. As follow me. But then there's the inward call. The call of the Holy Spirit. Which brings repentance and faith. The Holy Spirit which produces that change of heart. That change of heart that brings faith. It is only post that activity of the Holy Spirit's inward calling upon the individual. That they're able to come to Christ. As we talked about several weeks ago. Matthew chapter 7. Confession without conversion does not equal salvation. However, conversion can only come through the God actively working in and through the life of the believer to grant repentance and faith. So as Christ did to the scribe and to this other follower, I invite you to count the cost and to follow him. Are you prepared to give all for him? Are you prepared to live a life of suffering for him? We live in a very comfortable world today. Many of us living extremely comfortable lives. Ways that most of the world doesn't even know. Do you realize that in America we are some of the wealthiest people ever in all of history? With the most material goods, the most food, the most shelters, cars, so many things. And so you say, well how can I count the cost if I don't even know what the cost will be. Right now, I feel pretty good. I, I can tell you for a fact, I don't know what my life is going to look like in five minutes or five years from now, and neither do you. Lord willing, I'll still be preaching in five minutes, but we don't know. The Lord could take any of us at any time. The Lord could bring hardship at any time. So how true of a reality is it that Christ requires upfront commitment from you. You're right, you don't know. You don't know what your life is going to look like. Now, in the future, when you're 80, you don't know. But Christ says, I want commitment now. Are you willing to pay the ultimate cost now? 
Are you willing to leave everything behind now? Are you willing to suffer now? You don't know what that means. You don't know what you're going to suffer. You don't know what you're going to go through. But are you willing to commit now? John Piper puts it aptly. He says, authentic discipleship may exact from you the highest price relationally and the highest price physically. Discipleship is a tough road, but it's not for nothing. It's not useless. It's not pointless. Christ makes it clear throughout the scriptures that none of this is a loss. Matthew 13, 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Are you willing to sell everything? Are you willing to give up all that you have, including all of your sin, all of your pride, all of your self-sustainment, all of your thoughts of who you are for the sake of pursuing Christ? The man sees it and he would be willing to do anything for it. He'd give up everything for it because he found the treasure. So indeed, this cost is total in principle and very well could be total in reality. Could mean giving up everything. But in the end, it will all be worth it. So I invite you to count the cost. Knowing that you don't know what it means. Knowing that you don't know what the world will entail. As a scribe was called on, he doesn't know what Christ would go through. He didn't know if he would have followed him, what that would entail. But he was called to follow. As we close, I'd like to share a quick story. I'm not one for illustrations much in preaching. Um, I just found that they don't always tend to be as helpful as I would like them to be, no matter how hard I try. Um, so, but however, in this instance, I, I, I find sharing this story can be beneficial for considering our passage. As I'm sure many of you have heard of Adoniram Judson. He was a missionary in the 1800s, and he was one of the first with his wife to come from America as a missionary to Burma. The Judsons, as a family, paid some of the costliest amounts for the sake of bringing the gospel to an unreached people in Burma. The Judsons were frequently visited by illness and suffering and death. They lost three children. Nancy, his wife, spent nearly two years back in America because she was so gravely ill that they were afraid she would die if she stayed. When war broke out in Burma, um, between Burma and England, all Western men, including Adoniram, were arrested and presumed to be English spies. And he spent 19 months in prison, including a prison that was run by convicted murderers turned jailers. This is not a prison where there were rules and structure as we have today. You could never have a prison in America where a prisoner was not fed meals or at least given a place to sleep and shower. That was impossible for us to imagine. But this is what he lived in. There was no guarantee of food. There was no guarantee of any support. His wife, Nancy, had to beg and bribe and plead with the jailers to allow her to bring him food, to allow her to bring him comforts of any sort, to even speak with him. And after Adam was finally released from prison, the suffering did not end. It seemed to take a good turn because he became a translator working between the Burmese and the English as they tried to end the war. However, then he lost his wife and his two-year-old six months later. However, in the midst of all this tragedy, Adoniram was used for God's glory in ways that are still prevalent today. And we can be sure that he is now sharing in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not saying that all of you are called to be missionaries, nor am I saying that you really haven't got it till you've been like Adoniram. But the question must be asked, are you willing to give the highest price, both relationally and physically, should that be asked? Should that be required of you? Have you truly counted the cost of what discipleship means? I pray that you answer, yes, I'm willing to give everything. Whatever it takes, I will suffer. However, I must suffer for the sake of Christ. And I will follow him wherever he may lead.
and I will keep my eyes fixed upon him, not looking back, not looking around, but solely on him, knowing, knowing that he is the Lord and Savior. Let us pray.